everyone. Welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thanks very much to both of them. And I know I say that every week, but it is important to say it. But today I would like to do, introduce you to Jeffrey Allen, who is doing a PhD in political studies under the supervision of Dr. Christian Loprecht. Welcome to Grad Chat, Jeff. Hi, Colette. It's good to be here. Firstly, I'd like to let, just let you know that I met Jeff just a couple of weeks ago at orientation. The thing is with Jeff has only just started his PhD. So you might ask why bring on someone who has only just started their PhD because they clearly don't have any research to talk about yet to us. But this was a really important interview to show you where our students come from, what is their background and why they chose to do graduate work. It also will show that you can start graduate studies at any age. Sorry, sorry to say that, Jeff, but any age, straight after undergraduate degree, having the opportunity to do it part time or online and while still working. And of course, sometimes for some people, it's closer to the end of their career. So it comes down to a little bit more of interest sake or they're just using it again to go to that next level in their career. So, Jeff. You have a really interesting resume. I was very fortunate. We, I got to talk to Jeff right in the beginning, like I said, and it was at one of our workshops and suddenly he told me about he's done this and he's done that. And I went, oh my God, that is so interesting. And of course, some part of that background is your journalism, which I always find fascinating. Anyone who does journalism, because it means to me that they can, they can write, which I always struggle with myself. But you've been a journalist, you work with the United Nations, you have an amazing educational background as well. So I think let's start this interview talking about your education background, because I know you're doing political studies, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be in your blood because you've done political studies all the way through and even in your career is is on the political side of things. That's right, Colette. Yeah, I, uh, I did my undergraduate studies at Laval University in Quebec City. So my undergraduate studies were on on politics, political uh, studies, and I did that in French, not in my mother tongue, but in my second language. Right. And I did that for a reason, because I felt that being bilingual would be an advantage later on in my career. Right. Turned out to be the case. But uh, the framework for how I see the world began at Université Laval in Quebec City. and. Politics was always my passion, and uh, I was there at a time when the first Quebec referendum was being held in 1980. Okay. So I spent a lot of uh, late nights with uh, young colleagues uh, talking politics and learning <laughs> French at the same time. It was a great opportunity back then. Right. And th- but then down the track too, you went to, was it Syracuse University to do your master's? I did my master's uh, at Syracuse University. I had two actually components to my graduate uh, school days. I was a student at uh, Syracuse University, but I also went to the Monterey Institute of International Studies, which was in California. Okay. Uh, My master's degree was in what we call social sciences, so very broad strokes. I Mm -hmm. looked at history, I looked at international law, at legal concepts, and I did a master's diploma in what was then called nonproliferation studies, which is basically 
a fancy way of saying weapons of mass destruction, and I don't know how many people really understand what that is, but it's nuclear, chemical, biological right, weapons. Right. And I was studying that on a policy level, not the okay. science behind it, but more yes. the policy. Uh, and it fit well at the time because we were talking about that issue back in the early uh, part of the decade, in 2002, right. 2003. And I guess that kind of brings into your career itself, because you've had an amazing trajectory from, you know, going to the University of Laval and getting your undergraduate degree and then going into journalism from there. Was that a natural selection for you, going from your undergraduate degree in political studies into journalism? Or did you find that you just had a gift for writing and with your background, it was a natural fit to work with uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Commission? I was interested in political reporting when I was working for uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the fact that I spoke both languages was also an advantage. I graduated at a time in 1983, which was uh, a recession uh, was okay. underway in Canada. And right. I decided that probably the best way to advance myself in terms of opportunities would be to leave Montreal and the Quebec region and go out west. So I went out to Calgary and Edmonton. Right. And I was able to... Um, take advantage of some opportunities as a French-speaking uh, individual, second language. So my first uh, deadlines working in journalism were in French, not in English. And, okay, uh, right. So I, I actually started my career with Radio Canada, the French language network of CBC. Okay. And that was a big advantage. Uh, I was interested in political reporting basically because that had, that's what I was trained to uh, use as an academic when I did my undergraduate degree. But the strand that links both my academic career and my professional career and other pursuits is information. I'm basically an information analyst and that skill has many different applications and I was fortunate to have certain opportunities at certain times of my life. After then being in, in Calgary, you was that then when you went to New York City to work with the United Nations? Was that just a part of that trajectory? Did it, did they ask you to go there or did you see something and go, you know, I've got to give this a go? It's it's all about assignments when you work in the news business. Ah, okay. I had assignments uh, after Calgary and Toronto and then in London, England and finally in, uh, in New York City at UN headquarters, okay. which was my final assignment of a 13-year career in, in broadcast uh, journalism. I was much more a producer than I was on the air, but I did do on-air segments from time to time. So the last assignment I had, which was for four years, was at the United Nations. Okay. And that's where the UN got into my bloodstream, shall, shall we say. Right. I became a lot more interested in multilateralism, which is this, the dynamics between countries and the international community, which is the word that people in the UN like to use. So that was a natural progression that I would eventually end up working for the UN. I would imagine as a, as a journalist, it's actually quite interesting because... Journalist is all about, like you said, finding out information, which means research, mm -hmm. which checking your facts and the background of everything. So it, I guess down the track, it's kind of made a, a natural progression for you to go into research. But while you were doing that, did you realize that this is sort of the precursor of becoming a researcher or being, being thought of as a researcher as opposed to a journalist? Well, journalism if you're doing it right, is a lot about research. Mm -hmm. It's just that everything is compressed and you don't have a lot of time to do it, especially right. in broadcast news. Uh, very often your deadlines are a number of hours um, from the time you're assigned a topic. If you're in daily news, that's very often the case. But, but yes, journalism is an excellent uh, precursor to work solely in research because as a journalist, you're 
you are naturally curious, number one, and number mm -hmm. two, you, are, you, you develop a very good way of formulating questions and drawing information out of people and how do you get people to relax and talk about themselves or talk about an issue that they may be involved with. So the skill set that you acquire as a journalist is excellent preparation for when you become a researcher. Right, which is always good for people to, to realize. I mean, it's that way, but it's also the other way as well. Being That's a correct. researcher could make you a great journalist. That's correct. So, That's correct, um, absolutely. Which is important for people to understand because a lot of times our – our students don't re realize the skill set that they have when they're going through. And this is one of those skills that they could easily go out and do something more. I think what journalism gives you as a, as a skill set is social interaction with people. Okay. Um, it's an extremely important characteristic that you have to have as a journalist. I think as researchers, we work in the world of concepts, and that's very good, and that's excellent. But I think, too, you've got to be able to deal with people. And that's a, that's a great skill to have. Now, I noticed that, as you mentioned earlier, you're both fluent in English and French, and you also can converse in Spanish and have a little basic Arabic. Did you find that you're, you got more opportunities because you had that second language? I would say yes, um, definitely, because my first uh, deadlines working as a broadcast journalist were in French, not in English. So having acquired French at a French-speaking university in Quebec City meant that this led to possible job offerings, working in journalism with the French-language minority community in Alberta, right. of all places. But I would be the first person to say that acquiring another language is always a good thing as a social scientist, because... When you speak another language, you're essentially walking in the shoes of other people who may not be from your cultural background, right. who may not be from your linguistic background. And that's part of being a good researcher is empathy, uh, empathy towards the individuals who may be affected by the subject that you're studying. Right. Now, it is one thing doing this kind of work from a safe place in New York City or in Canada, but later you did get to deploy to Iraq. Yes. Um, and we're in Erbil, Mosul and Baghdad. Yes. Did you actually want to be in the field or was this just an opportunity as a journalist at the time that you couldn't refuse? Or were you still doing journalism at that time? By the time I was deployed to Iraq, I'd finished my career in journalism because I'd gone back to school above oh, and beyond the master's that I got at Syracuse University. Right. I went to the Monterey Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California, where I studied non-proliferation, which is basically nuclear, chemical, biological, weapons-related issues okay. on a policy level. So I had finished my career in journalism, and I had then done an internship uh, at the United Nations. One of the, I was probably the world's oldest intern. I was 42 <laughs> years old when I was an intern. It's um, never too which old is to a be plug to yes, if you want to change <laughs> career paths, it's never too late to it's do never so. Too late. And uh, I don't regret it because it did lead eventually to field experience in Iraq. When you're going to hire risk places for the United Nations, it's always best that individuals are self-motivated to go to those places. Right. That was my case. I was interested in Iraq and I wanted to go there uh, to be on the ground, obviously, because the perspective that you get from UN headquarters on a specific country can be very different, even if you're accessing you know, high-quality information. Mm -hmm. There's no substitute for being there. So right. I wanted to be in Iraq. I wanted to go to Iraq. And uh, I had the great fortune of being deployed there from 2009 to 2014. So I was in the country 
for five years in a number of different locations. You mentioned Erbil in the north, which is the Kurdish-dominated uh, area or Kurdish-controlled right. area. I was in the capital, and I was also in Mosul. So um, I didn't just stay in the capital. I, I managed to move around, which is probably the best thing to do if you're trying to get a better understanding of the country where you're deployed to. There's two questions that comes from that mm-hmm. then. One is what kind of work did you do while you were there? But mm-hmm. secondly, what did you learn from being there and why was that important to you? Well, I guess um, that was three questions. Uh, let's say, what did I learn from being there? I learned that adversity is a great character builder uh, for people. Um, I learned that if you are, for me, my service for the United Nations in Iraq was essentially a higher calling. You have to have this motivation. If you're going into a higher risk area, you really have to believe in the work right. uh, because a salary or sort of the prestige that may go along with being a member of the United Nations won't get you up in the morning and won't won't get you adjusted to, say, 55 degrees Celsius weather outside. Right. There are certain conditions, working conditions on the ground that you must adapt to. So for my purposes, it was a great experience because it allowed me to, A, understand what it means to help people because that's your primary mission when you're going overseas to a place like Iraq. You're there for the Iraqi people. You're there yes. working with, on behalf of the United Nations, but really your job is to reach out to the Iraqi people and do what you can to help them. I was a political affairs officer working in Iraq uh, for the United Nations, which is a natural progression from journalism or yes. for an individual like myself with a political science degree, undergraduate and master's level studies. So my job was really to talk to political parties, talk to uh, NGOs, get a read of the political situation in my area of responsibility in the country on a day-to-day basis and report that information back to the special representative of the Secretary General, who would be the UN Secretary General's representative in that country. Okay. So uh, very similar to to journalism and and political reporting. So you were fact-finding. Yes. And then passing that on for the higher-ups to decide what they want to do with that information. That's correct. And and that would also assist them in their interactions with government officials in, in Iraq or with uh, certain ethnic or sectarian uh, groups uh, right. that are part of the country. So did you feel like you were a bit of a mediator between the various groups? Mediation was one, one area that we did get involved with because uh, when I was in Mosul, for example, we often liaised with various minorities in okay. that particular province. They're called governorates in Iraq. But, and I had uh, quite a bit of dealings with uh, religious minorities and ethnic minorities. When you get ethnic minorities together in a sing- single conference, quite a bit of the work initially when you're trying to get people to talk and work together is mediation, is right. negotiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are sometimes hard feelings on various sides, especially in a country where it's post-conflict. So your job is very much to make sure that the individual you're working with own the agenda Mm -hmm. and the ideas that are coming forth, because then they're going to pursue those far more. It's not the UN imposing ideas on people. It's you drawing ideas out from them so that they work together in a collaborative fashion to get things done for the country. So yes, mediation was was part of it. So the time, the five years that you spent there, Mm -hmm. do you regret growing or was it something that well, apart from the fact that you wanted to do it, but 
you really felt you got something from it too, apart from hopefully helping the people on the ground as well? I would call it an edifying experience. Okay. Um, absolutely. I have no regrets uh, going there. I learned a lot from the Iraqis. There were times where I felt like I was learning more from them than the other way around. Right. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a very uh, humbling experience as well to find yourself in another culture, in another part of the world, in a language you don't necessarily understand. All of those good, all of those things are very valuable educational opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I, I come back to this whole question of adversity. And I was always amazed at the courage and the strength of the Iraqis themselves. Right. I mean, uh, I was there as a visitor, essentially. Yes. Even if you spend five years in a country uh, such as Iraq, you're not there indefinitely. There, there will come a day when you go home yes. or go on to your next assignment. And I was constantly amazed at the great courage and also the strength of family values of people in even in a post-conflict society right, right. they have a great uh, ability to understand what's important in life i drew those lessons while i was in iraq and they're with me today so uh, that's what i mean by an edifying experience well I, I think you've hit 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 it on the nail where you talk about you get, get a better understanding of their values and they've some of them they're values that we can bring back ourselves because it's very easy for us to sit here in a safe environment and think the world's all squeaky clean and happy all the time when we know it's not so to be able to have an opportunity to speak to those who are actually living it the hardships every day and hopefully the hardships will will go away eventually but speaking to people who have gone through that it's a bit of a wake-up call for all of us actually I think there's a lot to be learned from uh, the resilience that you mm-hmm. observe and understand in other people when you're in a, in a post-conflict society of that sort. Uh, and I think um, one of the first things that you discover when you return from years of working in a post-conflict society is there's a reintegration period that takes place. Correct. For me, probably the hardest thing to accept was just how much people take for granted right. in, in this country um, and how lucky we are to be uh, Canadians and how lucky we are to live in a, in a place where very often we don't have to worry about our personal security necessarily in a, right. in a way that you might in a post-conflict society. And that's not strictly an Iraqi feature. That's basically what happens in many post-conflict societies around right. the world. I always find it interesting that because I'm an immigrant to Canada too, but I haven't come from a war-torn country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet there are a lot of immigrants here, um, particularly the last few years from Syria, etc., who have come from areas of conflict. And it must be really difficult. I mean, one, they want to get away from the conflict to make their own family safe, but then they leave behind their culture and their homeland, which is really, really tough because they can't always go back there either. That's true. And they're faced with the prospect of making Canada their home, Mm -hmm. which is a tall order if you're coming from a part of the world where there's been a lot of disruption or a lot of violence. And I would say that there's a great deal of resilience for individuals who've gone through an experience like that. And we should listen to their stories if they'll tell me. Ask them them, um, about their experiences. And if they're willing to talk about them, Listen to what they have to say, because you'll hear some amazing things. And not really, we don't take a, an entertainment value approach for that. No. no. A gratuitous approach. No, it's what exactly can you learn from an individual who's come from such trying circumstances? Yeah. Very, very useful thing to, to hear. It is. Life. So that would have been, I don't think I could have done what you did, because I don't like to go in high-risk places. I'm a bit of a chicken, really, even though I'd like to think I could be of help. But, uh, so I take my hat off to you for spending five years over there. 
Well, everyone in higher risk places um, develops their own personal coping mechanisms. Right. How you uh, how you deal with that. Uh, what I taught myself was that we tend to focus too often on worst case scenarios. True. In our imaginations, we, we think of worst case True. scenarios. And as a social scientist, it's probably better to think in terms of likeliest outcomes. So in a given okay. day, what's the likeliest chance that you might actually be in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, where a car bomb might go off and you might be seriously hurt or killed? Right. Uh, that's a fear that you might internalize in a worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. But the coping mechanism you use in those circumstances is you have a job to do, yes. you have to get on with it, you're, in the, you're under the same risks, if not the, the Iraqis are under greater risks than you are necessarily. Yeah. So step up to the plate and get on with it. And get on with it. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, hats, hats off to you for that. So as you can see, everyone, uh, Jeff's had quite a varied background in his his career to date and so my next obvious question is why come back to do graduate research and, and in particular a phd why now in your in your life why now well i think because i've had years of experience in the working world more than 30 years i often believe it you know it's never too late to learn true yeah, no matter what your age so i'm a person with professional experience and background in search of a theoretical framework which is okay. what you get in, in doctoral studies, right. obviously. I have a lot of um, on-the-ground experience in international relations, diplomacy, international journalism, and now I'd like to put that within a theoretical framework, and the best way to do that is through doctoral studies. So that's why I'm back at university. Because it's age. interesting. Most people do it the other way around. They do the theory first, and then they go out and do the practical. They do, and uh, I think both are good ways to um, go about pursuing a higher education, obviously, of this kind. This is just how it's worked out for me, and I'm really interested in Queen's University. I'm fortunate to be here. My father was a graduate of Queen's University. Oh, is that right? So, and he passed away in January, and I'm oh, literally now, when I'm walking around the campus, I'm thinking of him. Oh, that's awesome. And what it means. Uh, so I, I believe I belong here, and I think the student president wrote an interesting uh, column uh, this right. past week about how Queen's students belong here. If you've yes. gotten here, you belong here. You belong here. And for me, I feel like uh, I belong here at Queen's. I think it'll be fascinating for people in your cohort to be able to listen to your stories too, because I'm sure you can impart a lot of knowledge onto them and your discussions that you might have in your various courses and seminars and things, I think, are going to be heightened by having your presence there. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I think I think knowledge is a, two, is a two way street. That's There's true. just as much I can learn from uh, fellow students and other students. Uh, no matter what the age group, as they can learn from me. But yes, I'll be happy to talk about uh, some of my experiences if people ask me uh, mm -hmm. for uh, for anecdotes or issues. And if I can flesh out certain theoretical concepts with uh, an on-the-ground experience, I'm happy to do that. And I think, like you said, it is a two-way thing because the other thing is we can also learn from the younger generation because they have a different perspective on the world than we might have had growing up. Absolutely. And so we can learn from where, where's their thinking process come from. And I say, I say to other mature students who are out there and who may be uh, just starting a doctorate or a master's um, as I'm doing, there's a lot of energy that you can get from young people. Right. And this is the thing that I think I really enjoy the most being on a campus with uh, with. Um, Students are much, much younger than I am. I feel that energy and it, it really uh, motivates me as a, as a student as well. And that's why I love my job too, because I get motivated by all the students on campus as well. They may not like me hanging around all the time, but there I am. <laughs> There's Colette. <laughs> okay, 
you're right in the beginning, you don't have a research topic yet. But coming back at this stage, you must, uh, apart from getting that theoretical background and framework that you're looking for, you must have some sort of idea or ideas of what you might want to hone in on for your actual research project. Yes, um, I, I'm quite interested in, in extremism, political extremism, obviously. Okay. Um, having worked in Iraq um, from 2009 to 2014, it could be noisy at times. Right. Meaning that, yes, uh, car bombs and things of that sort uh, do occur in the country. So I'm interested in, in looking at ISIS and looking at it uh, from the standpoint of an extremist group and most notably from a terrorism standpoint, is there going to be a next generation of right. ISIS uh, right. members necessarily? And what, are, what sort of strategies can be devised in those terms? That's a very broad definition. Yeah. And I'm sure there are lots of doctoral candidates out there are saying, my God, the man needs to hone this hone down, down quite a bit more, a bit. Uh, which I will do uh, in this coming year. Uh, but that's, uh, that's broad strokes what I'm interested in, in, in a right. subject area in any case. That could be quite controversial. It could. Which is nothing, nothing wrong with that. Sometimes with subjects that are a bit more controversial, you may get flack from other people because of your opinions. Not to say everyone's opinion is, is right or wrong. Are you ready for that? Because as a journalist, as, an, as a media person, you're now going to be on the other side of this. It's a good question. Um, I've done some... Uh work for the Canadian government uh, answering uh, press inquiries and things of that sort. So I, I have a fairly thick skin, and I think that's really important for anyone who's involved in research. Uh, in Iraq, we used to, on occasion, wear bulletproof vests, uh, body armor, right. but I used to also have mental body armor right. when I found myself in adverse uh, conditions. So, so I think it's important to not take criticism personally, necessarily. Mm -hmm. The... Uh, School of Graduate Studies, I think, had a professional development day for teachers, and one of the one of the subject yes. areas was dealing with controversial subjects, and I uh, I'm very interested in that, right. obviously, because there are ways to frame that possibly. I have to learn that yet. So you're right. uh, you're you're dealing with a really important question that I've yet to uh, come to grips with and grasp. All part of the learning process. Well, it is. And the Centre for Teaching De Centre for Teaching and Learning does some fabulous work and that Teaching Development Day has always been a very, very important day at the start of every academic year. But knowing that our researchers, our grad students and postdocs could be up against this, this is why School of Graduate Studies is also working with Queen's Communications to be putting on some workshops of how to handle the me sorry, <clears throat> how to handle the media in general. Mm -hmm but then also how to handle the comments that may come out in social media in particular, because they're the, the people who can hide behind social media, Yes. Um, how to handle all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a huge skill. Like you said, sometimes you just have to have a thick skin. Yes. But what else can you be doing to try and stop yourself from getting too worried about what those people say? Well, I think it, you mentioned social media. I mean, the, the very nature of social media in itself is, is adversarial. Mm -hmm, um, true. It is a, a forum where people can express their views freely uh, within certain boundaries. boundaries mm -hmm. Yes. So I think we have to get used to that yeah. uh, fact. Yes, because it's not going to go away, is it? It's not going to no. go away, no. And people are entitled to opinions. Correct. And people in this era find their platforms for where they want to express those opinions. So it, it's reality, whether we like it or not. And I think 
for any academic or budding academic such as myself, it's important to take that into account. So I, I come back to my earlier point, which is it, I think it's really important not to take uh, criticism personally. Criticism is of great value academically, intellectually, right. and uh, you usually learn a lot more from your critics than you will from the individuals who support you necessarily. Right. It's very important, obviously, to have full support of your thesis uh, yes. advisor, thesis director, but critics can also open new doorways. That's true. Put things under an, a different light that you may not have seen before. Right. So, so taking self-criticism is very important. So because I know you can't do too much yet about your research. I just wanted to finish off very, very quickly, if you don't mind, because like I said, I, I find Jeff's background absolutely fascinating. And you've done a lot with the UN and with your journalism, with the UN and all those sorts of things, and even with your schooling. But you haven't just done your job. I mean, you've been, you're involved with other things as well. And I was, when I was looking at your resume, it was things like, you know, you're a member of the International Policy Think Tanks. You mm-hmm. are a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, likewise with the Royal United Services Institute for Defence Studies in London. Mm-hmm. Um, you do some work with Quebec Military Institute. And then and then as a volunteer, you do a, a teaching assistant for English as a second language in Montreal. You do a lot of things. A lot of it is still back towards either your language or your political studies side of things. How do you find time to do all of that too? Are you still going to continue to do that? I I would like to, but obviously uh, over the next uh, year, my focus is going to be on my coursework Mm -hmm. and getting through my coursework and writing my comprehensive exams uh, next year. And as importantly, doing the work of a teaching assistant. Right. The memberships in the think tanks, I've been a member of uh, those institutes that you cited, at least two of those for well on 20 years. Wow. I, I joined those for policy information very often. Right. Quebec Military Institute is something very recent. I'm a member. I'm not really working for them. But think tank memberships for individuals who are in social sciences, political science in particular, very useful. Uh, second source of information, obviously. Right. Uh, lots of experts there right. in certain fields. So it's it's just um, a way to supplement the information that I had um, as a working journalist at the time. And I've just continued that over the years. It's so all about the reading and all about the different perspectives. So clearly. I guess with those think tanks then, just on that, that would create a whole new set of network it networking would. for you. Yes. So, I mean, we always talk about here in grad studies, you know, you've got to, got to get your network Get people, get to know people in different areas because you never know when they can help you in different different circumstances. Yes, and obviously international think tanks right. have international conferences. Right. And these are excellent uh, opportunities for researchers to go and mm-hmm. get exposed to new ideas or to present. We, we all as doctoral candidates have to do a certain amount of presenting, uh, yes. attend a certain number of uh, conferences. So joining these types of organizations for professional reasons is a good good thing. good thing. It's a very good thing. And um, again, it's all about exposing yourself to a, a wide variety of platforms of information and types of information. And think tanks is one way to, to go about that. I'm sure you're going to keep in, enjoying those think tanks and different think tanks here in, on campus yes. <laughs> within well, the student community. Even in, even in the academic community, there Correct. are think tanks in Canada, and that's uh, a really valuable thing mm-hmm. for any student to to look into. Right.
So, Jeff, we're going to have to call it quits, as I say. Um, I hate it when the show goes so quickly for us, but that's the nature of radio these days. Well, it's always been like that, I think. So thank you very much for coming on. I, and I do appreciate you coming on knowing that you haven't started your research yet. But I think, it, like I said in the beginning, I think it's really important for people to understand where our students have come from, what is their background, what made them come to graduate studies at what at a particular time in their lives. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Colette. And I actively encourage other mature individuals out there to uh, consider uh, graduate studies. Yes. Thank you. So as I say every week, that's another grad chat that sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Podcast or Stitcher. Just type in a grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.